Impact Driven Entrepreneur, episode 157, how we can continue to show up to support the Black Lives Matter movement with Timothy Gay. Stay tuned. You're here to make a difference. It's our job to help you do that. Welcome to the Impact Driven Entrepreneur podcast, the podcast that helps you to build a thriving coaching company by becoming a thriving, impactful CEO. We do that through the Impact Formula methodology. And what this means is that you're going to be selling out your offers, scaling beyond one-on-one into group programs, and leveraging a team so that you can exponentially increase your income and slash your work week. It's time to experience the true income, impact, and freedom you deserve. Welcome back to the Impact Driven Entrepreneur. Today I have Timothy Gay, who is a healing arts practitioner and the founder of The Infinite Transition, a brand that helps people to tap into, access, and embody the infinite power within themselves. Welcome, Tim. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. Yay. So we have been in connection for probably a year or so at this point. And we've been in several programs together and just kind of like back and forth on Facebook. And I had asked you to come on and and really kind of help us to talk a little bit about what's going on in the world today with regard to Black Lives Matter. And also, I think you just bring this perspective from being in the healing space and probably working through a lot of healing for people like throughout your career. And so I really wanted to have a conversation about how we can support, heal, work together, collaborate on the state of what's going on. Um, So welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Super happy. Very excited and um, honored to be able to speak about and talk about these issues in this space. Yeah. So tell us, like, how did you get into doing this? I think it's just always so fascinating to hear people's stories. Absolutely. And my story is, I, I think before I talk about my story, I do want to sit here and say for, the, for those of us who get into the healing arts, whether it be uh, physical healing arts or spiritual healing arts, whether it be with food or um, uh, physical physical health or anything of that nature, that a lot of this work found us because we needed it at that time. So in my case, I have been dealing with 20 years of suicidal depression uh, from the age of seven to 27. Mm -hmm. And that came as a result of being teased for God knows how many things, whether it be my name, uh, my big nose, you know, my uh, skin color, the way that I spoke, whatever the case may be, I had a lot of things that were going on in my life. And that led to a lot of different things leading up to suicidal depression. Um, After doing things like traditional talk therapy, medication, and even going through things like meditation, uh, I always found myself in and out of depression. It It wasn't until I encountered the Theta Healing Technique, which is a technique that deals with the subconscious mind and repatterning and reprogramming subconscious beliefs at a cellular DNA level through the connection with the divine and the infinite energy that we like to call God, that I was able to help with that, with releasing and actually healing from that suicidal depression space. And that was an interesting event in and of itself because I had been, I wasn't actively looking for something. It found me. And right at the time when I needed it, because I was working a job that I 
was absolutely miserable at and actually was ready to face the death door and take my life. And after I was able to call and have an emergency session with the lady that eventually became my teacher, and she was able to get me in two days later, she helped me walk through some of those things and actually shared that she had dealt with it in her family as well. And that just made me feel loved and supported because when I would talk about this with my family members or friends, they would try to be supportive, but they didn't really get it. And you could tell. And it wasn't that they didn't care. They just didn't know how to handle this. They didn't know how to help. And I think for most people, when they have friends who are in that space, they don't know what to do because either they are dealing with it themselves and are afraid to face it, or they're just oblivious to what, what would even lead people to that space. Right. So for me, I actually, to have someone actually acknowledge that that had happened in their family for the first time, I truly felt understood. Mm-hmm. And that session, I swear to you, took 30 minutes. <laughs> and after that, I haven't felt the same way. And that was seven years ago. Uh, back in, I originally encountered February 2013. Um, I ended up becoming a practitioner later this month in 2013. So I have been doing this work now for officially seven years, of course, unofficially my entire life. Uh, and it was a beautiful transition because I had actually wanted to get out of my job and get into something like success coaching. And I remember speaking to a friend saying, Hey, I wanted to, I really wanted to get into coaching. And his idea was I could see you coaching in one of two areas, either music because I'm a musician by trade Mm -hmm. or spirituality. The next day I got the email to learn the state of healing technique. And here we are today. Wow. That's incredible. And how, like, I'm just super curious about theta healing. Like we don't have to go too much into it, but like, how is it different than say like Reiki or another type of practice? Like, so you're saying it works at a subconscious cellular level. Mm -hmm. How is that different than say a Reiki healing or something else that like Akashic record or something else? So the Akashic Records actually shows up in Theta Healing as well. And the Reiki energy in and of itself as well. So what we understand is with Reiki, you're learning how to begin to move energy, which is one of the things that I truly love about that practice. Where Theta Healing is a little bit different is we're going directly to the infinite creative energy. We're going to that all-encompassing God energy. And in doing so, we can learn to co-create with that energy in order to repattern and reprogram things. So it isn't just moving energy simply because you can move energy you're co-creating with it and by working at that cellular dna level you're actually working also with free will and beginning to ask the energy to move to create with the energy to speak with it and to learn how to encompass that so another thing that actually makes it very different is that i'm not just working on the pain or working on the on the issue at hand i'm going to the core root cause of the issues so one of the things that I see was with when I see a lot of Reiki practitioners, or even when you see EFT uh, practitioners, when something comes up, the first thing they do is they tap it away, rather than let's go deep into this to see what's going on and heal that thing from the root. That root cause could be, and I know this may sound woo-woo to some people, but that's okay. Um, for the sake of example, it could be a past life. It could be a generational issue. It could be a land issue. Mm-hmm. And I know we're talking a lot about some of the issues that we're going on today. A lot of pain and trauma is held within land. So I do a mm-hmm. lot of work with trauma release. These things could be from your childhood, from 
your mother's child or father's childhood or grandparents or great grandparents or somewhere down your lineage that has been passed on to you. So this is how we talk about intergenerational trauma, things that have been passed down along the lines. And this is how we keep it going. Unfortunately, that we pass it on to our children because we encounter similar traumatic experiences and similar tra traumatic beliefs. So healing those wounds from the core and repatterning them, first off, getting that wound out allows it to stop that trauma and the trauma response in that moment. And then healing that and repatterning it to something that is more supportive, something that is more positive, something that is more uplifting, that gives you a new foundation to move forward in the world. That becomes much more of the focus rather than constantly reliving that traumatic injury, if that makes mm -hmm. any sense. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I've done the Reiki and the Akashic records. I've never done the Theta Healing, but this it sounds so fascinating to me. I'm all I'm totally into all this kind of stuff. So. <laughs> um, and so you you're saying like some of the stuff comes up like the generations past, and I know our mutual friend Dr. Monica. She has a program, and I don't know if you know about all her programs, but I took a program with her about women, wealth, and worthiness, and we did quite a bit of work on that, right? The ancestral patterns of oppression and how that shows up in our money. Um, with what we're seeing today, right? With these basically public lynchings and, and the disparity that, that's happening, um, are you seeing it like not only in this in the macro level, but also in each person's life, like in their day-to-day -day life where they're still projecting that pattern? Like how are you seeing it showing up? Mm, that's a big one. That's a beautiful I know. Question. I'm so deep. <laughs> like, oh no. I'm so I would, deep. <laughs> you know, I would rather have these conversations and be as deep as possible. So especially when it comes to money, and I can definitely speak in this space from the spiritual community, but not even just from the spiritual community, from a cultural aspect. So I'll start with the spiritual one first. How I see that in the spiritual community is we have this poor healer mentality. So what we see is that evil people hold money and that in order to not to be spiritual and loving and all those things of that nature, we can't, we don't need to be rich. That spiritual I nature that all the, the time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And what we don't realize is that spiritual nature and that spiritual belief shows up culturally as well. So if you think about, um, and I'll touch on the black thing in particular in just a moment, but if you think about how our movies portray money, how our culture portrays money, the people we prop up who have money, and how we don't want to be like them, and how we say, well, this guy's a jerk, that guy's mean, he's this, he's that. So we promote these millionaires and billionaires who are absolutely awful people. Mm -hmm. They're wealthy, they're rich, they've created all these systems of wealth generation, but as human beings, they're absolutely horrible people. Now let's take that to how they show up in movies. Take a look at, um, and Randy Gage actually talked about this many years ago, um, where he said, take a look at the protagonist in every movie is always this really sweet, wonderful, homey community person who's always poor. And then there's the evil rich guy. Now take a look at your books. Take a look at your TV shows. Listen to the music. Listen to how we prop up all of this stuff. 
And that is how we portray money. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's an absolutely amazing thing. In the Black community specifically, and I've had, you've had a few past guests who have talked brilliantly about this, but as we're starting to talk about what's going on, we have to look at this. Take a look at how many thriving Black communities have been destroyed, whether it be Black Wall Street and the Tulsa Massacre, or in my hometown of Detroit, Michigan, um, the destruction of Black Bottom to build I-375, a freeway that is not needed and has no serving, that serves absolutely no purpose, is completely pointless. There was also something that I recently learned uh, that Central Park in New York City was once a thriving Black community that was destroyed specifically for the purpose of building Central Park. Mm. So now you start to look at if I try to do anything to build my wealth or my community, I will be destroyed. That that trauma, that generational trauma stops people from doing anything. And that becomes a subconscious belief that stops us from moving forward. And yet the cultural narrative around it is you should stop talking about it. You should just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You should, you know, you need to get over that. That was X many years ago. And yet you don't realize that the systems in place today are still perpetuating those problems. So that's when you start having the money issues because it isn't just people's belief systems. It isn't just a subconscious belief. Unfortunately, it's a system. And that's why that system really needs to be looked at and taken to task because that system has unfortunately oppressed so many people and oppresses more people than we want to admit. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I, I mean, like I can speak about it from an immigrant perspective, right? Like I came here with one suitcase, right? That's my story. That's how I showed up in the US, right? Um, And it's like, it's been, you got to go to school. You got to learn. You got to be better. You have to climb the corporate, you know what I mean? Like it's been that angle, which is still under underneath all that is the same type of thing. Like if you don't work hard enough, it'll never happen, right? And it's so difficult because the whole system supports that, right? Like there is literally a hierarchical system to being able, like you can't just come in here. My parents, I mean, we don't have to talk only about this angle, right? But like for my parents, for example, they came with graduate degrees, had to start over, right? Like it was not valid basically when they came. Um, fortunately, we were privileged to have the money, the means, the you know, smarts enough to get different scholarships and stuff like that so that they could climb up, right? That is a huge privilege, but that is all supported in in the system and the structure of how things are here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. So what are you seeing as, I don't know if you would, I mean, how have you thought about this? Like, what are your opinions about how any change can begin to happen? So I know like when this whole thing first happened, the first thing that came to my mind is like training for like, and by, by this whole thing, I mean, when the murder, the most recent, not recent, because there's been other since, but when mm-hmm. everything <laughs> happened, <laughs> like this is so hard to even come to talk about this, but um, Don't say when, George Floyd, right? <laughs> yeah, when George Floyd was murdered, okay, my first thing when I saw that video, because 
of, you know, what I have seen in my life with um, training and stuff for police academy and federal, like my ex, he was, he's a federal agent. So like all of that, I saw him really changing through the training. And so my initial thought is like this, the way they're trained needs to end. There's a dehumanization of people even in the way that certain officers and certain branches speak about people, they are less than, right? Absolutely. And that is so ingrained in the way that they're trained that I think that is one of the biggest problems I see because what happens is humans value humans. And so the only way for this to be set up so that they can Uh, dominate and create force and do all the things in power that they're doing is they have to dehumanize others, (laughs) right? Like, absolutely. So that's how their training is. And I initially was like, that's what needs to change. You have brought to my attention so much more structurally, systemically, et cetera, that can change. So can you talk about some of those things? Absolutely. I can. So I had said this just a moment ago, and I'm going to reiterate that Mm -hmm. racism is a system, that Mm -hmm. discrimination is a system. The modern form of what you see as as racism and stuff like that is not just the surface level, mean people, outright racist, uh, white supremacist organizations, so forth and so on. It is literally a system that has been perpetuated throughout so many years. So when the people ask me the question of what is, what is white privilege, I mm-hmm. tell them that it is, a, it is a system that you were born in that gave you privileges simply because you won the genetic lottery. Mm-hmm. You, were, you just happened to be born white. You didn't do anything to anyone. You didn't hurt anyone. You didn't abuse anyone or oppress anyone or gain anything. This system was set up long before you existed, long before any of us on this planet is, has been alive. This system has been in place. When we start to understand that, we start to understand how people are able to move in certain situations uh, and gain certain things and how that, it, that creates what we call an implicit bias. And in just basically an ingrained way you look at anyone, that way is taught to us simply by our system and our culture. So when we talk about, for example, a few bad apples and getting them out, we miss two things. One, that it's a system that has Mm -hmm. created for people to think and act and do a certain way and to, in a sense, oppress people in in a very awful way. And two, we never complete the statement of a few bad apples because the full statement is a few bad apples spoils the entire bunch. So how do we indoctrinate people? We use the people who are already in power, who are already those bad apples, to make you a bad apple too, in a way that you don't think about. So as we start to unpack this system and unpack this racism, what we have to realize is that it is as much covert and even more covert than it is overt. So think about, you know, I know one of the things that we had talked about and um, that I had to point out to you is that being a Latina woman, even though you are Latina and you are an immigrant, that even still then being a light-skinned person gives you privilege Privilege, simply because you are 
you are more fair skinned. Yes, you are Latina. Yes, you are a native Spanish speaker. But if you look at other people who come from Venezuela, there are also people that look like me that don't have those privileges. Yeah. And that, that was my ex, right? Like I've seen him struggle more in that with, than I have in many ways, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So we start looking at the implicit bias. We start looking at the colorblindness, uh, the forcing people to code switch or forcing them to certain speak to speak a certain way to quote unquote, speak so well. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, all of these ways in which we covertly try to get people to erase them. I love the colorblindness thing because, uh, and and love sarcastically being the word, you know, the the (laughs) phrase, I'm colorblind. I don't see color. Well, sure you do, because unless you are genetically colorblind, you see this. But also, if you can't see color, then you can't see patterns either. And if you're choosing not to see this because it makes you uncomfortable, then what are you doing? What are you trying hard to ignore? What are you trying hard not to see? And I'm seeing this cognitive dissonance within our culture currently because it pains us to look at this. It pains us to see it for what it is, but we have to see it for what it is in order to start to dismantle it. So you already had a couple people on your show, Brahinda and Dr. Monica, who have talked about learning things such as the history, learning things such as um, the like the cultural perspective and narrative that have come out. And you've started to see some highly disgusted things. Yeah. Things that are like, wow, this actually happened? Wow, this is real? Wow, this is, oh my God, this is disgusting. How did we get to this point? We got here because at some point in time, someone decided to create this thing called race, which happened during the Spanish Inquisition because we didn't want dark-skinned uh Muslims basically to inherit Spain. So how did they know how to kill people? They literally started going by skin color. And ever since then, it has continued the pattern of calling people a race of black or white or brown or whatever, red, yellow, whatever the case may be. Even though we're all human and really we're just different shades, Mm -hmm. we have learned to try to other people by doing this. And we've created a system in othering people and creating a hierarchy. And it's time that hierarchy gets destroyed, but you can only do it by looking at the uncomfortable issues. And starting with historical things are some of the best ways in which we can do it. Yeah. One thing that was really eye-opening for me, I was reading um, White Privilege, the, the, or White Fragility, the book. Mm-hmm. Um, And one of the things she said was white people, their number one objective is to not be seen as racist. (laughs) Like when the race conversation comes up, it's like, well, I'm not racist, right? And I will tell you right now, as a Hispanic with fair skin, I was like, there's no way I'm racist, right? Like I was so in the pattern. I was like, so in the pattern of like exactly what white fragility is, right? Which was, well, I I can't be racist. Like my kids are dark skinned, right? Like I can't be racist. Like, But then I was like, hold on a second, take two steps back. That's like the whole thing, right? That is everything. So I think like you're a hundred percent right is like, I think as light-skinned people we have been led to believe that like we have to defend our position as not racist right that we Mm -hmm. have to like 
not look at the color, right? Or like whatever the, the, the way in which we defend it is, right? Oh, my kids are this, my ex is this, my friend over here is that, right? Um, mm -hmm. People have come to me, like people have been like, well, you're my Hispanic friend. So <laughs> like, right. is this okay? <laughs> <laughs> right? um, and so I think like really just being cognizant that if you're buying into that, if you're defensive in this conversation, that's the moment. And for me, it really hit me when a woman uh, posted in a Facebook group and she said, for all of the mothers of you know, children of, who are biracial, my request is that you do all of the work on this. Like that was her request. And she talked about how her relationship with her mother was so strained because of white privilege. And I was like, I cannot let that be my children, right? Like I, mm -hmm. I cannot let that be my children. I think for everybody else who that's not their experience, right? If your children may not be biracial, right? It is our job to at least be willing to allow ourselves to not make the judgment, just like you're saying, racism is a shade of, is, is shades of gray, right? And not make a judgment that you are a bad person. If you're currently believing I'm, you know, I don't see color. If you're a bad person, if you're making judgments or pooling people together into a group or using the tokenism of the one white friend or one, you know, black friend or one Hispanic friend or whatever the thing is, just being aware even of that, I think is a great first step to see like nobody is exempt from this because it's so systemic and ingrained. Yeah. Not one person, not yeah. one. And I know Lisa Rankin, who's based in the Bay Area, um, who wrote a book on um, the placebo effect. Um, she, was, she also wrote a very wonderful article, I'm Not Racist, and I think everyone should read that because she talks about, yeah, everyone can be racist, but not all racism is equal. When mm -hmm. someone's whole thing is about, is their racism is leading to your oppression, then at the end of the day, that's something that has to be really face because one's prop one is voicing an extreme anger the other is trying to prop up a system that mm -hmm. benefits them and that's the thing that's the biggest difference and i'm not advocating for racism for anyone mm -hmm. i don't i'm not a fan of it for any person but when one person is holding up a system that and they're using the racism to do that that's when i have a massive problem that's when i get upset that's when i'm like we need to look at this we got to be mm -hmm. honest about what this thing is because your idea of my, racism and my idea of racism are not the same and they need to start aligning in order for this to be resolved. So that's, that's where I stand on that. Yeah. So can you explain more on like what that system for personal gain can look like? Oh, goodness. So, <laughs> well, you want to talk about levels of racism? Let's go there. Let's um, go there. Yeah. It, it's everything. It's, social interactions it's financial and that's the biggest one the that big i think one. a lot yeah. of people don't think of the socioeconomic impact so one of the things let's talk about a little bit of history here um yes a slavery may have been abolished by the emancipation proclamation but then they were talking about and we've heard the, the phrase 40 acres and a mule things that were never given to black people 
uh, after their release from slavery. And then of course the Juneteenth celebration that happened that we recently saw where of course the people didn't even know they were free because they were in Texas where everyone moved their slaves to. That was very mm -hmm. interesting. So you have things like the 40 acres and mule, the reparations that never came. Now let's fast forward to today and what that looked like. There was a practice called redlining. Specifically, yeah. what redlining did was it identified quote unquote good and bad neighborhoods that kept very specific people in or out of certain neighborhoods. So I know that, for example, in the city of Detroit, uh, we had the eight, eight mile line, which they were literally, um, HUD, the Homeowners Association, was basically literally giving loans to white people to move out of black Detroit. Literally, that is mm -hmm. what happened. And it lined people off. So when black people went to get business loans or home loans to move into a certain area, they were specifically denied access to those areas because white folks did not want to live next to black folks. So what ended up happening is we created what we call white topias where only white people could live free from being connected and living to next to black people. And there are a lot of those areas. Think about, you know, every major American city in this country and where those white topias were built. Uh, think about like, for example, East Manhattan in New York. Uh, mm -hmm. Look at Naperville in Chicago. Look at certain- The entire of Long Island. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yes it is, exactly. Long Island, absolutely, where you could have every white person in America without having to deal with any black person from Harlem or mm -hmm. from the Bronx. And you certainly didn't want those Latino folks coming over there either. Mm -hmm. I could use, of course, a horrible racial slur, but I'm choosing not to because that's <laughs> insulting. Um, so all of those things, that's one of the many ways. Think about the lack of home uh, loans you can get. Think about the lack of business loans. There, are, there was actually a study put out that black business owners with better credit, more money, better business practices, and even a full business plan couldn't get loans, business loans, but their white counterparts who had not even 20% of that, or even none of that, were handed money freely. Mm -hmm. And it was absolutely ridiculous. So that's one of the many ways in which we, we put people down. The other thing is, like, think about when it comes to the social aspect of how many times your Black friends have told you their stories of X, Y, and Z happened to me. No one believes them because you're just playing the race card. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why sometimes Black people get so upset and any person of color really gets highly upset because they're like, they feel like when I'm telling you my issues, when I'm telling, sharing with you this story that was very real, that happened to me, that was absolutely horrible, you don't believe me. What mm -hmm. do I have to do to get people to believe me? Did it have to take a George Floyd to happen for you to start listening? And even then, right. still, people still aren't listening. People aren't, oh, and people keep dying. That, yeah. like, I mean... Ah, <laughs> exactly. Like, what the hell do I have to do to get you to listen? Yeah. Does it have to be me? Like, goodness gracious. Like, that's, that's the thing that really, you know, upset me. When you had that issue, uh, God, I'm blanking on the dude's name right now. But um, the, the issue that happened in Beaverton, Ohio, where the cop that killed this gentleman pulled Dave Chappelle over the night before. And it was amazing. And yet... That same cop was called to Walmart by a scared white woman who Oh the had, yeah, the was it the Amy one or the Karen? Yeah. No, no. It was this one was many years ago. Okay. Um 
but that cop pulled over Dave Chappelle the night before and he let him go. Even though Dave Chappelle couldn't find some of like his registration or his ID or whatever the case may be, he said, yeah, I know who you are. But Dave Chappelle, that bothered him because he was like, I shouldn't have to be Dave Chappelle in order for it to live. Right. And it's the same thing. You know, what if that was, uh, you know, I've never posed this question to a lot of my friends, but it is something that I really want them to think about because what if that was me? Right. I have no criminal record. And I have never done anything bad. I haven't been arrested. I have, you know, nothing is going on. But what if a cop did that to me? Would you then stand up and say something? The question then becomes, why did it, does it have to be that? And then mm -hmm. I also want to speak to another way in which we oppress people system systemically is take a look at the news reports and how we report these issues. Mm -hmm. When a white person does something, it is always they just lost their way. When a black person does something and the headlines are always, let's take a look at their past. Let's take a look at their issues. Let's take a look at, oh, this guy was on drugs. He did this. And like, there was a video I was watching where a guy was talking about, you know, George Floyd had this past. He was on drugs when he died and he tested for co positive for COVID like 19. Look, I don't care what he did. I honestly don't care what he did because every time we focus on that issue, we change the narrative from what an oppressive, abusive person of the law, who's supposed to be an upstanding member of the law, did to violate his oath that he took to take office. And we changed the narrative from this cop made a mistake to this person deserved to die. But mm -hmm. did he? Did he deserve to die? No, is that nobody really does, what we right? want? Absolutely. <laughs> but is that what we really want to start telling people? Because I can tell you a ton of people, like, look, I don't care what your past is. One, I know a whole lot of white people who have records who nobody looks at them. Mm -hmm. And number two, if you want, you don't know what that person was on the, on the track to doing. They could have been looking for, toward reforming their life. Uh, uh, a guy by the name of Shaka Senghor from Detroit, now lives in LA, spent 19 years in prison for second degree murder. And since he has gotten out in the 10 years that he has been out, has become an MIT Media Lab fellow has written a book, is in the process of writing another one, has been on Super Soul Sunday with Oprah, was interviewed by her. She said that was the best interview she has ever done for anyone in her life. Mm. And has written a wonderful book called Writing My Wrongs, which I highly encourage everyone reads. But that's just one of many redemption stories. So you mm -hmm. don't know what that man was on the way to doing. But if you just end his life and say, oh, well, it's just one more thug off of the street, that word thug that has been weaponized against Black people, specifically Black men, mm -hmm. is something we really need to look at. Because I will give you another story. Um, if you remember the couple at the Cincinnati Zoo whose child fell into the cage for a Harambe and they killed, they had to kill the gorilla so that, they, the child, that it didn't kill the child. The media went and found all of these negative things about their past and said how much they were bad people. What the hell did that have to do with that? Right. Like seriously, what, what did that have to do with any of it? That was absolutely ridiculous. But not even a week later, there was a couple in Florida taking a picture by the water with their one-year-old son, I believe it was one-year-old, but a very young child. That out of nowhere, unbeknownst to them, and this was caught on video, that an uh, alligator came in, snatched their son, pulled it into the water. They haven't seen their son since. Not once did the media dive into their past. However, a few 
uh, if I remember correctly, there were a few people that did do their own in in independent investigations that couples passed, and they found that between the two couples, they were not very different at all. Mm -hmm. Yet one was dragged through the mud and the other was like, oh, they just made a mistake. Well, those black people made the mistake too. Right. But why are we trying to assault one people? So this is one of the many ways in, in the system and how we deliberately attack people and how we choose to prop others up and destroy others. Yeah. And this is, you have a really powerful graphic and we'll link to it um, that you posted on one of our feeds, which was the quote unquote, socially acceptable racism <laughs> versus not socially acceptable, right? And this is in plain sight through the media, one of these socially, quote unquote, socially acceptable, like we, I mean, people see it, right? But aren't either calling it out, aren't noticing it. It's just so ingrained, right? Or whatever the case I've, you know, Absolutely. And it's just, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. And so that's why we have to start looking at the covert ways. And yeah. I talk about, and when I also talk about covert ways, I often talk about the part we play in it. And that's why it is so covert because you think you're not, you know, the worst thing you can call a white person is racist. The worst thing that they can be called is a racist. But what they don't understand, what a lot of white people don't understand is what you think is racism goes well beyond your understanding and how you're willing participants in it. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to be, you may not think you are, but you have no idea how much it's been built into culture. So when people say, man, it's not about race, we need to stop talking about race. It's built into everything that you know. Right. Of course it's about race. And that's the uncomfortable problem. Yeah. Yeah. And it starts so early, like my children, in school have already been called all kinds of names, you know, come home crying at age three and asking questions like, why are kids treating me like this? You know? And I think it is, you know, it, I think as a parent, it's so difficult because like, it's like, what do you do? Right? Like it sometimes is so covert that like, attacking it head on just causes the person to become so defensive and really it, it doesn't move the conversation in any way that is favorable. So it is, I mean, it really is every single person's responsibility. And if anything related to race ever comes up, really being willing to look at your own I, I almost want to say like complicitness in the system, right? Like that is the key, I think, um, for each individual. Absolutely. And honestly, being willing to, I think as parents of children of color and darker and brown skinned kids, we have to start also checking your teachers because it shows up in your education. And I think Jane Elliott really said it best that what we call education is really indoctrination because mm -hmm. it's designed specifically to push the white narrative while ignoring everything else. And if issues like this come up at school, like I had a friend who said her kid was, you know, her um, kid had, she had a couple of instances where one of his friends came over and said something to her son 
that really bothered her. And she went and told the parent and said, yeah, your son said this to my kid. He will never say this again. He had another incident at school where a kid said, well, all brown people lie. And he came home and said to her, it's like, mom, is it true that all brown people lie? She was like, where did you hear this? So she went up to the school and made a fuss and said, I will, this will never happen again. You're, I'm going to say, so she talked to the teacher. The teacher never talked to the parent. So she ended up going to have to talk to the parent and saying, this is not going to happen. Oh, did your teacher talk to your son? Did, your, did this person talk to you? No, what's going on? And she told her what happened and it really baffled her. Also think about um, the fact that we have, a, we have to have a Black History Month to talk about these things, mm-hmm. to talk about the achievements of Black people. And yet, if you look at the historical aspect of how much Black people have contributed to everything in this world and how it is not being shown, but you can learn Europe's history up the ass mm-hmm. and never once learn anything. But there's a dedicated history to Black Month. There's a dedicated month for Black History, rather, so yeah. backwards. And so you wonder, like, why is all this stuff done? And, the, and even with Black History Month, which was actually created by a Black person for the purpose of actually promoting Black achievement, this history is American history. Black history is world history. And it needs to be included in our history books because of the fact that it is history. We can't just erase this stuff because we don't like people. Mm-hmm. And this is why all of this stuff needs to be looked at. And so when you start looking at all of this, it, it's a rabbit hole of, oh my God, this sucks. Oh my God, am I doing this? Oh my <laughs> yeah. God, I'm a horrible person. I'm ashamed of what I've done. I'm ashamed of being this. And then you get to say, okay, now what can I do about this? I can, because I can stay, you can stay ashamed. You can stay upset, you can stay sad, but then there are steps that you get to take to actually change these things for the better. Because if it doesn't happen for our lifetime, it can happen for our children. Because I got a child and I have another one on the way. Mm-hmm. So what is the world that I can build for my kids? And my kids are also biracial. We got two, I'm about to have two Blasian kids, uh, black and Asian kids. So that ma- this stuff matters to me. Yeah, yeah. I love that you're talking about this indoctrination because, I mean, as entrepreneur, I see it uh, in the other, you know, like you're, I mean, school is basically to have you become an employee in a factory, in a cog, in a wheel. exactly what it does. (laughs) It's exactly what it does. So so you really want to question, and and I think for all entrepreneurs, is is that system that, that we're putting children in and you know, I mean, I think COVID's been great because it's given us a fresh slate to look at. Is this even necessary? <laughs> right? Like, is school Absolutely. necessary? <laughs> oh, my God. You have no idea how much I've said that COVID, as sad as it may be, and what it's done has been the best thing because it's shown everyone that the system that we live in does not work. Yeah. And I know there are some people who will sit there and say, well, it works if you have money and all stuff like that. And look at all these corporations. They were able to get money too. Yeah, but you also have to think that they had to get bailed out. What, mm-hmm. Where was all this profit? Why didn't they have all that money saved? You know, <laughs> something doesn't make any sense here. And I think especially we have to start talking about the racism in the entrepreneur space, in the spiritual space in the world that I live in as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I, because that 
that spirituality space also intersects with the entrepreneurial space as well. And that needs to be faced in those communities as uncomfortable as this conversation is about to really get. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. I think, um, and I thought it for a long time as like, oh, you know, if only I was more cool and white and my name wasn't so Hispanic sounding and all the things that we say or think to ourselves, right? And, and I can only imagine, right, like someone who is black or, you know, less white looking than me thinking all of the other things in, in relation to that, right? Like I can talk pretty white sounding, I can look pretty white looking and, you know, and pass off. But, you know, this is a big, I think it's a big problem. And it's not, it's not made up in your head. I think for a minute there, I was like, well, is it a limiting belief? You know, is it something that I am, you know, like trying to be a victim or not owning my power? And, and, and because we're so, um, I think used to looking at that conversation and pretty self-aware, we can have that conversation with ourselves. But when the system is oppressing, it's beyond that, right? I mean, can you shed light mm -hmm. on this? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I, the first thing I think a lot of people try to do when all these, in, these conversations come up is the deflection piece, simply because it makes us uncomfortable. We're like, man, I don't want to look at this. I don't want to deal with this. It's, it's hard. And we just want to say, well, I want to, maybe all this stuff is just made up. Maybe people are trying to divide us. Maybe this is some conspiracy theory. And I've actually, it's really funny that this part of the conversation is coming up because I've seen these things over time, which is, this is just Marxism and trying to destroy our country. This is just mm. people trying to become, turn us into communists. We're just trying to become, you know, this totalitarian state and all this stuff is coming up. We need to stop talking about all this and face it for what it is. And it's like, yeah, the last part's true. Too bad uh, the first couple parts aren't. <laughs> we need to start talking about it for what, and face it for what it is. And so one, another one of my very good friends, uh, David McCullough, big shout out to him, who owns Inception, the world's first 21st century mental health gym. I highly encourage you, if you're ever in the Detroit area, to check him out or in LA. And I know he's got a couple other locations coming. I want to shoot him out personally because he said, whenever you start facing these issues, whenever these conversations come up, you will always see agents of the system People who are not willing to be that, by the way, come up and try to destroy this conversation. And especially when you start seeing, well, I've seen this with a lot of my white friends. I've seen this with a lot of, you know, people speaking out about this, that the very first thing you have all these people of all different types, including black people, will come in and try to say, this is wrong. You just should make more money, work harder, do this, do that. Listen, people are working harder than they've ever worked before. And they ain't got, excuse me for saying this, they ain't got shit. Mm -hmm. So people don't need to work harder. And also speaking on the coaching and entrepreneurial space, we know that people were, are working harder than ever before. And they still don't have anything. And it's funny because we often package our programs around the fact that people are working too hard and they want to work less and make more money. So why can't we empathize with all the things that are going on right now? Right. That baffles me. It has baffled me for a long time because we had no problems taking people's money when it was just COVID, knowing they didn't have anything. But when this stuff came up, people are eerily silent. Mm -hmm. And I don't get it. Oh, wait. Yes, I do. They like their money. 
And there are a lot of their clientele are white and they don't want to upset them. <laughs> they don't want to upset. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we've seen that. I mean, I've seen horrible, like just from people that I was expecting more from. Mm-hmm. And I know we know someone it, like it basically, they just made it a line item. I was pretty pissed about that. <laughs> um, That's, I saw it too. And I'm like, really? That's it? I'm like, come on, man. That's the worst thing. And I've had other things come up too, where the line item was unity. And I know, um, Miranda talked about this, like, where is like she, this person posted something from unity, the human race and talked about, we just need unity. But what is unity without equity and justice? What mm-hmm. is unity about honoring the past and understanding where all of this stuff has come from? Or do you just want to return to business as usual? Mm-hmm. Just, and especially because these people are wealthy and white, they know they have privilege and they're not trying to lose it. Exactly. And that's the piece of using the privilege to like self-serving, right? Like, let me just pacify this right now and then get back to doing all my thing, right? Absolutely. And I see this also happening in the spiritual world where I reside a lot of my working is a lot of people are just passing this off as why don't we just, we just need to have more love, more love and light. We just, people are just not loving each other enough. We're all God's children. We're all one. Yes, we are all one. That means this affects you too. So why aren't you speaking up? Mm-hmm. This issue, if this, what people don't understand is this movement that you're seeing happening is all about love because people are tired of being in a relationship with our, a codependent relationship with an oppressive, abusive system. And narcissistic system at that. We want to have a relationship with, pe- with a system. If we're going to have a relationship with a system in particular, why can't that system actually be that loving peace? Why can't it actually be all-encompassing? But it's not. And that's why you, we have issues where people say things like all lives matter and blue lives matter because you're erasing everything that's going on. And especially the blue lives matter thing because no one is a quote-unquote blue life. You chose to put that uniform on. You chose exactly. to wear the badge. You, you weren't born into that. You put that on. You also get to take it off. I can't yeah. stop being black. And, and that's one of the things like we see with the performative allyship where you saw like um, when the current administration came and people wearing safety pants. It's like, oh, that's great, Karen. Guess what? That doesn't make me feel safe. Because I know when I walk up to you and say, oh, thank you for being an ally, you wouldn't do anything. As a matter of fact, you'd probably be creeped out because a black person walked up to you and said, hey, how you doing? And it was really friendly. You, I see your safety pin. Oh my God, why is a black person walking up to me? Because it was never real to you. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. the very same thing where I've talked to um, veterans who see like the ribbons on the back of cars that say support the troops and they can't stand them because they're like, you're doing that for you. That doesn't do anything for me. And it's very true. Yeah. That's why I'm not a fan. I mean, this is going to (laughs) go. So like uh, um, about a year ago, they like were trying to pass a law. And I don't know if it really passed or not of like having a certain ratio of women at, you know, executive um, tables. I was pissed. Okay. I have sat on those tables and I have been yelled at, spit on life-threatened literally they told me like i had a doctor come and tell me he's gonna kill me uh (laughs) um these people (laughs) yeah this is where i used to work because i used to work in hospital administration 
And um, I was like this young Hispanic girl who had a lot of authority and they were, did not like that. Right. So um, yeah. So anyways, I was like, I'm totally against this. Like put me at the table because I belong on the table. Right. Like don't Mm -hmm. put me at the table because there's a checklist of certain number of women need to be at this table. So, I mean, and that it, to me is a is a big problem. Like that's not the answer to equality. No, <laughs> have that a mandated system. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it's a it's a cover your ass tactic. Let's be honest for what it right. is. It's a cover your ass tactic to say, see, I look good. It's like when these companies give employee questionnaires to say, how are we doing? All it does is it makes the company look good, but most of the time they never address any of the employee concerns. Mm-hmm. So it's the exact same thing. When we're doing this, you know, diversity stuff, people don't need more diversity training. They don't need more intersectionalism in that way. The intersectional work has to be doing the damn work. Right. It has to be looking at how you are participating in a system willingly or unwilling that oppresses people. And it also has to look at your part in it and how uncomfortable that may be. And that's the thing that I, that I see a lot of people struggle with because I know even a lot of white people who post a lot of really good things, some of them have never asked the question, uh, have never, not even asked the question, but even made the statement of, I'm still learning. I still have a lot more to learn and I'm not all the way done. They think they're woke because they're posting all of these things and they don't realize that they're not, that they're not as woke as they think because the moment you think you're finished, the moment you think you've done the work, you have so much more to do and so farther to go. And that's okay. Yeah. That's with the white fragility book. That's one of the things she said. She said something like she has been learning this for like 30 years or something. And she's like, and I still don't know it all. <laughs> and then we're like, oh my God, yes. Like it, this is going to be a long, lifelong path, right? It's not a checkbox. Absolutely. So think about, for example, people like Tim Wise or Jane Elliott who have been doing this work for decades and they're still doing it. Mm-hmm. And they have no problems sitting here and doing it because they know that it's like, look, I'm not making up for my part in it, but I know I can no longer sit on the sidelines and allow all of this stuff to be done because I see what's happening and I see it's killing people and I'm not okay with this. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. So I know we're at time. Where can people continue to connect with you and with all of the the wonderful work you're doing? I know you have some healing stuff, resources for us as well. Absolutely. So I'll tell you where I can find me first, where you can find me. <laughs> I can, <laughs> uh, you, I, you can always follow my work on my official website, theinfinitetransition.com is, a, is the first place you can find me. You can also find me via Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and I also have a YouTube channel, which I will be doing more wonderful updates to in the very near future. Uh, as for the thing that I want to offer all of you today, um, I have been very honored throughout this entire this time, whether it be COVID and even this space, to help people to relieve some of the stress and trauma that are that they're feeling. So I actually ended up doing a grieving meditation, a meditation designed specifically for grief 
releasing grief and healing. And I think especially during these times, with doing all this work, so much is going to come up. It's going to come up for you. It's going to come up with other friends or family members, anyone who's doing this work. Because this work can be highly challenging, and I encourage you to keep going. But I also encourage you to, to make sure that you're nurturing yourself along the way. So releasing this grief and stress, taking time to um, discharge all of that is going to be highly important for all of you. So I want to make sure that you have that and continue to go back and watch it. Like I said, it was originally designed when it was just COVID, but it applies to now as well. So a grieving meditation for modern times. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom and being willing to have a deep conversation. I love it when I get to like go deep, and like not surface stuff. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Ready to add your next six figures into your coaching practice? We are putting together a special conference called the Scaled Coach Summit, where myself and over 20 speakers are going to be sharing with you all of the details and specific strategies that you can start to implement right away into your business to add your next six figures. Go to impactdrivenentrepreneur.com slash summit, S-U-M-M-I-T, to register and get your hands on this conference with over 20 industry leaders giving you their best tips for adding your next six figures. See you there.